anniversaries are a funny thing. No sooner have you stopped celebrating one, than like a TARDIS leaving the tomb of Rassilon, another one comes along. Yes, we've just enjoyed the smorgasbord of delights from the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who, including the specials with David Tennant and Catherine Tate, and such brilliant iPlayer treats as Tales of the TARDIS and the Daleks in colour for the first time. But now we cast our minds back with the memory TARDIS, 40 years to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Doctor Who and the season 20 collection Blu-ray box set. With me today on today's Trap One podcast is Sai, Denise, Pete, and coming in from the Time Scoop of Brooklyn, it's US Jason. So guys, um, cast your minds back to that uh, many moons of 1983. What are your memories of this season when it was transmitted, if you were around? Yeah, I was there. I um, For this season, I was the perfect age for Doctor Who. I was eight years old. So, um, yeah, this has a lot of very strong memories for me. So um, I was very much, very, very much a fan of Doctor Who at this point. So reading the, the monthly every month, I was... Um, sort of lapping up these new stories i can remember um talking about it on my table at junior school after every episode um with everyone who was sat there with me um particularly we were all very excited by Mordrin undead because you got a glimpse of a dalek and we hadn't seen a dalek for quite some time at that point so that was really exciting i think that was more exciting than anything else that happened in the season <laughs> that that conversation has really stuck with me with mark lucas um, hello, Mark. Um, and yeah, it's um, it's always a nice one to come back to. This is very much my comfort era of Doctor Who. And I hadn't realised it at the time because at the time I'm very much a fan of Tom Baker and wanted him back. Um, but Peter Davison, more than any other Doctor, I think, is my comfort Doctor now. And this these this era and these titles are the ones where I feel, oh, this is, this is proper Doctor Who. yeah. Well, I mean, I was a bit older. I was 14, but it was really my first season as a fully-fledged reader of Doctor Who Monthly, Doctor Who fan who'd actually read something about the stories before they were broadcast. I was collecting the novelizations, and, yeah, I was coming to terms with my identity as a Doctor Who fan at that point. <laughs> and, yes, like, like you, Sai, will always love Tom Baker with all of my heart, but there is something about the Peter Davison era and the Peter Davison and this season in particular that just feels so good. It makes me happy in ways I can't even express. Um, yeah, same. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a similar bracket. What was I? I was, I was nine and a half. Uh, and uh, well, this is the this is the first instance of me coming back to Doctor Who, having sworn I was never ever watching it again since they ruined what? it by a killing Adric and then b getting rid of Tegan. I'm like what? I, 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 I was adamant at school when after after um, episode four of Timeline that I was never watching this show again. It was rubbish. Now I've been watching it for nearly a year and it's not nearly as good as it used to be. Oh, uh, your fan gene kicked in early. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, all of that was forgotten. And, 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 and Janet Fielding was just in all the promo for this, for this um, 
uh, season coming up, and I'd loved the repeats of the five. And, and it was a big deal that Omega was coming back because we'd seen him the year and a year and a half early, hadn't we? In the repeat, the repeat of the three Doctors. Uh, so yeah, and it was obviously going to be the best season ever because it was an anniversary. And Jason, you would have seen this on PBS originally. <clears throat> this is literally where I came in as a fan. So this is not until the end of 1984, so long after the original UK airing. And Doctor Who, this is old hat for all of you, but in case there are any new Trap One listeners not familiar with PBS, PBS is not one station. It is a network of stations that show different programs at different times, and different PBS stations produce their own programs that are shown on others, Some import a lot of sci-fi from the UK, some do not. Growing up in the New York City suburbs, I had access to six different PBS stations on a 30-channel cable TV system. So I could watch PBS from essentially all over the Northeast. And when I discovered Doctor Who, the Peter Davison run had just begun on two of those different stations, one out of Boston, one out of Long Island. So... I came in on Channel 21, WLIW, the Long Island PBS station. My friends had already become fans at age 11 and told me to watch. So I tuned in rather famously to part one of Time Flight. And after about 45 seconds, I said, okay, I'm not interested in this. And I turned it off. And they told me to try again. And I came back a week later for Arc of Infinity Part 2. And I watched through the cliffhanger where the doctor is supposedly vaporized, and Nyssa turns into tears at the camera. And that was the specific moment that drew me in. And I didn't always watch over the next couple of weeks, so I missed all of Snake Dance. I really enjoyed Margin Undead. Then I missed all of Terminus. The Enlightenment Part 1 cliffhanger is probably the defining moment for me, because once I saw that cliffhanger, that this Edwardian racing yacht is in space, there was never me turning back and after enlightenment part one i never intentionally missed another doctor who episode and then i had this rude awakening where i joined online fandom not just in the 90s but twitter in the 2020s i learned that the peter davison era especially seasons 19 and 20 is the one era of the show you are not allowed to say nice things about if I try and say anything nice about Davison, but what about Terminus? What about Green Day? What about Warriors of the Deep? So I had to <laughs> apologize for loving this era of the show, but this is literally why I'm here as a fan 40 years later. So I am here to repel all the haters and show my love for season 20. Yes, even Terminus. <laughs> and how about you, Jason? Uh, yeah, I'm probably similar age. I, I Going into 1983, I would have been 10 years old. Uh, and then by the time the five doctors rolls around, I'm just like a couple of weeks after my 11th birthday. So yeah, perfect age for Doctor Who. Again, Tom Baker is my childhood doctor. He's my favourite doctor. But um, I kind of like was swayed by the whole glitziness of Book <laughs> Rogers. Um, so I didn't really kind of like shed much tears for Tom <laughs> leaving, and I was actually quite excited. Uh, when Peter Davison came along because um, um, I was a huge fan of All Creatures Great and Small as well, which was like airing on like Sunday nights on BBC One. It was a huge, big drama. So I liked Tristan Varnum as a character. Um, yeah, and so just going into this season, I remember all the kind of like the, the little 
bits of nuggets in Gallifrey Guardian and Doctor Who Monthly about you know it being an anniversary season and that there's going to be a foe from each like uh, from the year and you know for the whole of, of the show in each story just being really really excited uh for it to like you know unveil and the whole thing about omega as well uh that was like really really exciting uh, to see omega back in arc of infinity so with the arc of infinity um obviously we're back on gallifrey um and we have um by its alternative title, you could call it The Adventures of Commander Maxwell. <laughs> uh, we also have the Doctor Who debut of Colin Baker in this story as well. And uh, we have that famous story of him being a little bit uh, too arch and uh, overacting sloppily <laughs> in rehearsals and John Nathan having to like take him to one side and tell him that it's not actually his show. <laughs> well, it wasn't yet. Not yet, yet. yeah. Um, <laughs> So, again, um, is Ark of Infinity a good sequel to The Three Doctors? Yes. Well, it's a story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that that is entirely its role. Um, I mean, The Three Doctors was unique, special, had never been done before. Um, Ark of Infinity, the whole season was a celebration, wasn't it, culminating in the Five Doctors. But, uh, yeah, um, nice to see Omer go back, and it was very wise of them to show show the five faces of Doctor Who, including the three, including the three Doctors. So, yeah. Um, but it's more to... There's more to it than that, I think. There's so much joy in that story. There's so many wonderful little moments to like because uh... when were we last on Gallifrey is this the first visit to Gallifrey since Invasion of Time or am I forgetting something because yes. it yes, it's, yeah, e yeah. it's so yeah. easy I know in the 80s people say oh in the 80s you pop back to Gallifrey every 10 minutes and yeah sort of but this is a big deal going back to Gallifrey at this point isn't it mm. and, and the doctor's on trial and the timeline's going to kill him again um, and it kind of while watching it now the similarities with the plot of the five doctors are so striking. It's like it's a, is it a bit cheeky that here's, here's another Gallif you know, who who is the who is the traitor in the High Council? It's like, but then you know, a system of government where it turns out pretty much every single person is a, a, a completely a, com completely treacherous turns out to be fairly accurate, perhaps. Um, so yeah. Um, I, and the, I think a theme with the designs of this season and 21 too, there's lots of aliens in it that look fantastic in photos and the, they haven't got the ability to do the movement yet. Like the tractators, like are such a cool design, but obviously they're, they're just a big solid thing of fiberglass. Uh, and, but Omega's very squidgy and his, his fluidity is very unusual and very, and, and just so, so eighties. Yeah. And com compared to the Ergon, which really can't move without <laughs> clattering its way across the studio floor. Um, but it looks great in photos. The design yeah, is really good. Yeah. It's just impractical, isn't it? I, it's it's a strange old story because um, some of the actors clearly have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> and um, But this is nothing new for Doctor Who, so that's, that's fine. But Colin Baker particularly is seizing every single opportunity to show off what he can do. And that's 
that's a brilliant performance. I think he got the job while doing this. I know JNT, in JNT's memoirs, he talks about that story he told about how Colin Baker entertained everybody at a wedding, and and and, and that's what convinced him to give him the job. But he, in his memoirs, JNT says he sort of that wasn't really the case. He he thought that was a nice story, so it's what he told the press because uh, Colin Baker did entertain everyone at the wedding. But that wasn't why he gave him the job. I I think yeah, I think his scene stealing ability during this must surely be what made JNT think. I've got bigger plans for you. <laughs> well, yes, because that's quite a cast, isn't it? In Ark of Infinity, playing the playing the Time Lord. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and not half the cast it could have been, because mm-hmm. there are are very um, alternate versions of the casting, including Patrick Stewart and Pierce Brosnan in wow. various roles, <laughs> which would have been just incredible. <laughs> I want Patrick Stewart as um, as Chancellor of Thalia. <laughs> <laughs> the wig would suit oh, him. he would rock that wig. Suit him a yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Leonard, let's, I don't think anybody's got Leonard Sachs as their favourite Barusa. Is anyone putting up their hand? No. Uh, yeah. And that's the thing where JNT casts outside the box. Sometimes he hits gold, and other times somebody just sort of looks like he's doing his best. He is taking it seriously, but he's not really. He's, but he he's, is. But he's, he's, a, he's a host, he's a, he's a variety show host. Uh, who hasn't really done a lot of acting for a very long time and certainly has never had to play a, a high counsellor of an alien race before. So, uh, yeah, um, maybe not the greatest Barusa, but um, I always loved a um, friend of the podcast, Brendan Jones' theory that um, Cardinal Zorak was on the high council designing all the, for designing all the coffee shops on, on Gallifrey for this story. <laughs> They do, yeah. He doesn't do anything else. They've been to Habitat, haven't they? <laughs> they really have, yeah. <laughs> Lovely little water fountains here and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not gothic, but then it's 1983. Yeah, it's 1983. It's, yeah, 1983 and... is not a year for a gothic aesthetic. That's that's perfect for 70s no, Doctor it's... Who. It's pastels. Pastel, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like like Jason, I I remember the termination scene very well, and I can remember drawing that in wet playtime at school because that was such a memorable scene with all the smoke billowing oh, you out. Mean, and you mean when it was raining? It, Sorry, I, I, what the hell is yes. wet? Pete! <laughs> <laughs> it's memorable. You're saying that, there is a kind of gothic kind of like creepiness into the Amsterdam scenes, which... You know, were filmed actually quite well and a little bit dark and mysterious. That's true. So, yeah, um, good point. Yeah, maybe that's why yeah. they went for the. Op- that, that, it was more of it's more of a, if Gallifrey had been all gothic as well as the crypt in Amsterdam, they would have just looked the same. Yeah, so they made them different. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, this is not a sequel to the Three Doctors. Let's explode some myths. So, the Three Doctors is Doctor Who's ninth anniversary story. It airs in nineteen seventy-two, just after the ninth anniversary. It is watched by between 9 million and 12 million people. Arc of Infinity airs 1983, over a decade later, and it's watched roughly by about 7 million people each week. It is not the same 7 million people. You have to imagine that a large portion of the audience watching Two Doctors in 1972 has graduated, moved away, forgotten about the show. Many of the people watching Ark of Infinity were not born when the Three Doctors aired. Maybe they saw the novelization. For them, this is a new story featuring a returning monster they probably have not heard of who bears no resemblance to the Omega that we saw in 1972, if you saw him. 
and is not even the same actor or the same costume. Now, yes, it was part of the five faces of Doctor Who season. I suppose you could argue that people saw that and dimly connected the two stories together. Um, not talking about the hardcore fans, but you know the average person just tuning in to watch on whatever night of the week Arc of Infinity yeah. was on. For me, I saw Arc of Infinity first. So for me, it was not a sequel. It was a story that I was watching and enjoying on its own terms. And it wasn't until later on in my fandom journey that I learned that there was this other story. I don't think The Three Doctors is even that good. I think it's an okay story. I've got some issues with it, which I can certainly discuss in another forum. But it's not like Three Doctors is the greatest of all time, and this is a terrible sequel that besmirches the memory of the original. There are a couple of problems with Ark of Infinity. The Ergon is not one of them, okay? The Ergon, (laughs) yes, it's a clumsy costume. This is Doctor Who. They're all clumsy costumes. People love Frontios. The Tractator costumes are terrible. People love Caves of Androzani. The Magma Beast costume is terrible. People love Genesis of the Daleks. The clamshell is ridiculous. You can't say, oh, the Ergon is a bad monster, therefore the entire story is bad, because most Doctor Who stories have bad monsters. And the Ergon is maybe a quaternary villain at best, so I wouldn't even worry about that. I think the biggest problems with the story are Leonard Sachs and the music. Roger Lim's scores are soul-sucking. Stories are actively bad because you are listening to his dreary synth whine over and over again. If you were to re-score this with Patty Kingsland, I think the rating would go up by at least two points. If you have it 5 out of 10, a Patty Kingsland score makes it at least 7 out of 10. It's got some really good moments. I think the Part 2 cliffhanger is great. I think the Doctor's confrontation versus Ian Collier at the end is terrific. I understand why people don't like this story, but I don't approve of the reasons why people don't like this story. So <laughs> I think it's significantly underrated. And the reasons that people don't like it are cheap shots that could easily be applied to many beloved Doctor Who stories. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. For the TED Radio Hour, I'm Manoush Zomaru. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big criticism, isn't there, of like... Um... Like one of the criticisms of 1980s Doctor Who with um, John Nathan Turner is that obviously they the overseas stories, the ones that in- included like overseas location filming, were just there to do a, a, like for the excuse for the production team to go a- away on a jolly. Um, do we feel as if like the setting of Amsterdam adds much to the story, or is it just like nice wallpaper in the background? I I agree. I think City of Death was a terrible story and they should never have gone to Paris. I mean, it's just a ridiculous question. (laughs) If you love City of Death because Paris looks gorgeous on film, the same applies to Ark of Infinity. In fact, one of you guys pointed out that the aesthetic in Amsterdam is the best aesthetic in the story because it's better than the set design on Gallifrey. I think the visuals in Amsterdam are a tremendous boost to the story, especially the canals, uh, having the little John Nathan Turner cameo in the background is pretty cool. I have no problem with Amsterdam in this story. And when I went to Amsterdam for the first time in 2019, I was looking for Ark of Infinity landmarks. I'm, I might be getting to go there next April. I haven't been before, but I might be able to uh, accompany David on one of his many trips. Um, presuming we can find somebody to look after the pussycats, of course. So (laughs) I'll be looking forward to that one. But yeah, I mean, I think there was even 
a plot reason why Omega had chosen Amsterdam because it was below sea level and he <laughs> needed something with the water pressure and the water pipes or something like that, didn't he? But, uh... <laughs> Yeah, but it's nice. I mean, that's the thing, you know, it's funny sometimes people get a little bit too, like, it didn't go there for any specific reason. It's not right. The, the Omega doesn't have to be harnessing the power of tulips in order to go <laughs> to, to break down the barriers, in, in order to go to Amsterdam. Well, that's um, right. Well, no one ever has a reason for going to London. Exactly. So. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's just, we can go a little bit further afield than usual. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the music, you mentioned the music, Jason, and that's because because this was on a short burst of this music. Now, also, I, I would I would very uh, off topic, but I, I mean, I think the scores to Keizo Andrazani and Revelation of the Daleks are, are, are two of the best ever. But uh, I, but I, but I definitely agree with you that this one is not one of the best ever. It's so <laughs> annoying watching it now. The same three da, 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 over and over again. But on the on the Doctor Who the music LP, the first ever Doctor Who soundtrack LP they did, there was just little snips of it, including one track amazingly called Ergon Threat, which just and it's just that pulsing sound. And when you've only got to listen to it for like two and a half minutes, it's really punchy. Yeah, well, those three <laughs> tracks were really good. The bit yeah. where the the Omega Force Field track where the Oh yeah. The, um, coming um for the um sort of chase through the TARDIS is really good. It's so, sound effect, but yeah, but it is less than yeah, it's under three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does really start to grate on a rewatch the music for this one for me. Yeah. And obviously talking about the location, uh we do mm -hmm. see even though it's like later on in the box set, because it's been kinda like for some reason it's not on the Ark of Infinity disc itself, it's shunted over to disc nine with one of the yeah. many versions of the five doctors that we get in this set um we have let's go dutch which sees um peter davison sarah sutton janet fielding and mark strickson go for a jolly to amsterdam to uh, relive their thoughts on oh, it was uh, very sweet, the filming it? of the story yeah. which i thought was uh, a nice uh, good little um documentary yeah, do you know how long ago that one was made? Because the timescales of this, this is this box set had such a strange um, long gestation period, didn't it? It's, it's kept getting interrupted and things. Um, but yeah, and it's, it's fun having Mark Strickson there with them, not who obviously wasn't in the episodes himself, getting to uh, getting to sort of be a bit of a narrator and, uh, and and learner as they go around. Yeah, it's nice. Mm. I did love the bit where they're recreating the publicity shots. <laughs> Um, on the on the steps, and poor Sarah Sutton's got to hoik herself up onto the bars <laughs> to get get up. And um, the recreation of how they had to had to do the location filming when there aren't any steps to go down to the crypt because it's not real oh, as well. Davison's dad pretending to go down behind a sofa down a staircase yes. behind a sofa is <laughs> <are> remarkable. <laughs> There's always just a really nice rapport between this cast. And so just watching them on screen sort of doing things like this is it's just, yeah, really lovely to watch. Yes, and they, they met the um, Amsterdam Doctor Who fans as well, didn't they? And they had a surprise boat trip with them, which was lovely. Very nice, yeah. I don't think we found anything out in particular that we probably didn't know, except for that Mark Strickson is really bad at timekeeping and nearly uh, turned up late to miss the Eurostar game. <laughs> <laughs> Two documentaries on that last disc. There's this one, and there's the road trip one with the Peter Davison and Sarah Sutton and Janet Fielding driving to Germany. And it's interesting to juxtapose the two because the the first one, the road trip one, is just three 
actors of a certain age sitting in a car discussing their old person problems while insulting each other for two full days of driving. I'm like, guys, can you have like one serious conversation to make this worthwhile? And that was clearly filmed in 2019, and they mentioned several times that it's being filmed in 2019, even though the copyright date is 2023. That compares unfavorably to this one. My favorite part of this one is just the four principals sitting on the Eurostar for half an hour, just talking about their experiences on the show in a very positive and warm way. And just visually, they seem to be a couple of years older than they did on the road trip, so maybe this was done post-COVID. But they all have books in front of them. And you know me and Doctor Who books. They have the 1983 DWM bookazine. They have the mm. Arc of Infinity novelization. Peter Davison's uh, one of his biographies. It's a really warm, true-life segment. For me, that was the real winner of the final disc, that Let's Go Dutch. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's got a really nice vibe to it, yeah. Yeah, I think Peter Davison does mention, I think, when he's talking to the, uh, the group of Dutch uh, Doctor Who fans who joined them on the boat trip, that um, season 20 box set has been in production for several years <laughs> and that you do will see yeah. them physically age. <laughs> so there is something about that. I actually didn't notice that when I watched um, Let's Go Driving and oh, Look Who's Driving and Let's Go Dutch. Um, we'll speak about Let's uh, let um, Look Who's Driving because uh, if behind the sofa is the Doctor Who version of Gogglebox, then do we think that Look Who's Driving was essentially the Doctor Who version of um, <laughs> the old Top Gear or the, the Grand Tour with Peter um, Davidson taking on the mantle of Jeremy Clarkson, Janet Fielding being Richard Hammond and Sarah Sutton being a little bit uh, bitsy. And, uh, well, they all James drive Man. more carefully than on an average episode of Top Gear, particularly Sarah Sutton. That's true. <laughs> It made me think of the episode of One oh Foot in the Grave. I expected that Mrs. Walker is suddenly getting over this top of the car. That's a bit of a niche one. But um, yeah, now we had the privilege of, because of, we got to go to, got to go to the BFI screening and see, saw, so we saw the, the remastered Five Doctors, which we're going to get to uh, there. And they also played an extended sort of clip, of, about a 15, 20 minute clip of kind of some of the funniest bits of, of the, the road trip documentary. Uh, and and so seeing it here, for the, it is like, yeah, it is an hour of people arguing <laughs> in a car. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's that's the show, uh, and it is quite funny. But it does, they, yeah, they, they just argue in a car for an hour. It's like I did like the bit where they went and made chocolate. I mm. thought that was really lovely, actually. And the bit where oh, they yeah, like they, they had well, little tasks yeah. to do were were quite fun. It would be funny if they'd picked up Mark Strickson at the chocolatier and left <laughs> and just dumped Sarah on <laughs> and they had to. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> Although with that's another, we'll talk about the interviews later. I'm sure as well because because the interviews mm -hmm. are great uh, with her and Janet. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes. The photography is great on the road trip one. I mean, you have the drones, you have um, a lot of long shots. They have a big crew traveling with them to get footage of our traveling. That was lovely. I just didn't like the three of them arguing in the car for 67 minutes. I don't need <laughs> that. I got I got enough of that at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they make good use of the drones and everything, don't they? Yeah. We have leader to trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. So moving on to obviously the second story in the season. Now uh, I will um, hold my hands up and basically say that Kinder is one of my favourite Fifth Doctor stories, alongside Earthshock and the Caves of Androzani. 
and uh, the visitation and five doctors. Those are perhaps like my top five, um, like five doctor stories. Um, Snake Dance never quite did it for me. I feel it's like Christopher Bailey's difficult second album. Um, it tries to recapture like the, the creepiness and the magic of um, the previous story, but doesn't quite um, get there. And I don't know whether it's because we, you've got a different director. Uh, you haven't got Peter Grimwade, who did such a great job with Kinder. So what's everybody's thoughts with that? Um, well, Snake Dance was the most terrifying story I saw as a kid. So... I will have none of this. It's not as good as Kinder. It's better than Kinder. Um, yeah, you know, there are there are very few Doctor Who stories that actually terrified me, but this one did because I had a real thing about stories about possession following Kinder and following Peter Davison's book of alien monsters, which had the scariest short story in it that I'd ever read as a, as a seven-year-old, which was a story called Semolina, which is about a bowl of sentient Semolina that possesses a young child. And so <laughs> between these two, I was absolutely traumatised by, by the idea of possession. And then Snake Dance comes on the following January and absolutely terrified me particularly the end of part one, which I think was a phenomenal cliffhanger, but all the scenes of Tegan talking to herself in the mirrors and people being possessed and the whole ceremony at the end, I found really difficult to watch as a kid. So <laughs> this one, I I love more and more as I get older as well. I think it, it's really good. The world creation in this is far more interesting than than um, Kinder, I think. Although the visuals are not quite as good, I think Manusa is brilliant and the way the Mara has become a myth to these people, but they don't realise it's still there, is is a really fantastic thing. And I, the other thing that I really love about this is that they've seen what Janet Fielding did for one scene in Kinder, and so they make her do it for the whole story. And that's too... Um, that's to its bonus, I think, that it's one of Janet Fielding's best ever performances. Yep, no arguments from me. Well, anyone does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I don't get on my soapbox very often, so... <laughs> and, uh, and this is a good example of a story which I've, I've come to like it more on, on, on the Blu-ray uh, because uh, at the time... I can't remember what it was at the time. And as a kid, I think I was... I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, this is studio bound. I wasn't thinking that at the age of nine. But maybe that was kind of hitting me a bit. They are they are just in some rooms, in some sets, uh, and they go to and the mo and it's but now I look at it and it's it's it's, it's I hate it when people use the word theatrical as, or, or um or stagey as, as like derogatory because that's a form of drama and, and and it's that's fine. And and it is, you know, it's 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 like watching a play of the of the street, for example. There's no that's not convincing you that you're really out there in a street. You know you're watching some actors on a set because it's drama, it's fine. Uh, and I think as an adult I, I take that more easily. Uh, I, or I go with it more easily. Um, I always found the ending though was a bit too like, oh yeah, it's the crystal. We just sort of smashed the crystal. And I was like, oh, is that, it? <laughs> is that easy? And I always and I did want. To, I want to see more of Janet Fielding being evil. I want to see her killing people. Maybe if they do another road trip movie, they really will get. <laughs> <laughs> they could take possessed Janet Fielding with them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, what you uh, no, I, yeah, I would be very careful if I was giving her a lift. 
Um, but yeah, she sort of disappears for an episode and a bit. Well, she doesn't, doesn't completely disappear, but she's just in the, hiding in a cave at the back. But it's got. But yeah, you're right. Though, particularly in the first two episodes, there are some really scary sequences, and especially with the, the fortune teller woman. Uh, just, just they are. Abs- they're, they're, they're doing their bit with 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 that studio facility they've got. Yeah. And it's the only Doctor Who story with the word naked in its title. That's a fact. For <laughs> <laughs> so fun, good point. Yeah. So who knows what would happen now? Now Scooby yeah. likes to wander around long, with no yeah. trousers on. Who knows what will happen? <laughs> well, I mean, as a contrast to what we were saying about the music from Ark of Infinity, I love the music from Snake Dance. And on the Doctor Who, the music album, there's the Janissary Band, which is a really striking, strange piece of music, which I remember I absolutely loved as my best track on the album at the time. It's, it, it only sort of drifts in and out of the actual soundtrack, but there's a piece of music on this album. It's really, really... Yeah, it sounds sort of backwards and um, forwards at the same time, doesn't it? And yes... Yeah, it's um, offbeat and off kilter, and it's all sort of fades in and out, and it's very weird. But uh, yes, and the whole look at me sequence, and you think it's Janet talking, but no, it's Martin Clunes talking, Lom, and uh, yeah, there are so many good things about this story. And I tried to get David to watch it. I said it's one of the greatest stories of this era, and he was a bit sort of, hmm. He wasn't convinced. I mean, I even like Nissa's outfit. I think it's got an unnecessarily bad press. <laughs> I think it's got a lot going for it. It's uh, practical and sweet. And uh... and it did. This story did suffer from. I mean, Martin Clunes is meant to look like an idiot. He's meant to look. He's meant to be cringing about the silly costume he's got to wear. Because mm. all get that gets lost whenever. Noel Edmonds' Teleaddicts quiz decides to show some clips of crappy old science fiction shows with every, for the audience to laugh at, and they would show this, and the audience would all be in absolute hysterics. Oh, that still scarred me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you haven't got the context, and so out of context, most things in Doctor Who look ridiculous. And we get the um, we get the the bonus feature as well, don't we, of uh, of Janet and Martin reunited. Oh, that was a great interview. Yes, I like that very much. Isn't it? That it's two, mm-hmm. two actors just really talking about their work. Mm. It's really interesting and the different styles. Yeah, and I love that he said he had such a crush on her and they're looking at the pictures and, of course, she looks absolutely stunning and gorgeous. And uh... Yeah, there was a real warmth between the two of them. But I hadn't known about his dad either. It was interesting to learn about Alex Coombs mm. as well. Yeah, I didn't realise his father was famous, uh, so it was interesting to like hear about that um, in that documentary as well. And obviously, uh, Martin Clunes, you know, with his his first big like acting break, and he went out and bought a, a BMW <laughs> and uh, then got pulled over by the police and <laughs> kind of made a ridiculous story. You know, so he didn't get like you know like sacked by uh, John Nathan Turner for being late for rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really, really good um, bit of bonus. So, where do you stand on the story, Jason? To the people who are upset because this story is stagey or because the snake doesn't look great, congratulations, you've cracked the code. It's not a documentary. <laughs> Wonderful. To everyone else, 
this is one of my favorites. A couple of things to love about this story. Once I had been a Doctor Who fan for about nine months, my PBS station moved the nightly airing time from 7 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. And 11.30 p.m. when you're 11 or 12 years old is normally well after bedtime on a school night. So the only time I got to watch Doctor Who for several months was on Friday night. So I saw every fifth story. So Castro Valva Part 4, Kinder Part 1, etc., the only part that I saw of Snake Dance for the first few years of my fandom was Part 2. And the Part 2 cliffhanger is terrifying, especially when you're seeing Tegan's eyes glow fiery red, to quote from the novelization, right before midnight. That was a pretty sleepless night for me. Luckily, that was the summer by then, so I didn't have to worry about missing school the next day, but <laughs> pretty scary stuff. Something else I love about the story is Peter Davison, because... For most of season 19, he's not allowed to play the character that he wants to play, and he has to suppress the humor. This is kind of the story where he starts to take the gloves off and play the doctor that he wants, and you can see, really, the rest of his run, especially the more hyper season 21 Peter Davison coming to life in the story. And then it's got one of Doctor Who's single greatest scenes ever, the six faces of delusion scene. That's some of the best writing the show has ever had. So... I won't hear a bad word said about Snake Dance, even if you're not happy about the sets or the snake. I think it's a wonderful story. And speaking of the snake, we do have some new FX, don't we, which bring it in line with the uh, the previous uh, story and the, the new FX that on that. So, um, um, I mean, the, the snake was scary anyway, I think. Um, but obviously it's more uh, less rubbery and more CG. And I still think it has the impact um you know that the original had but obviously you've got the option to choose uh which one you want to watch yeah it was just nicely done wasn't it like kinder it's quite subtle but quite well done i always liked the fact that um when they're doing the big parade through the streets they use the giant snake from kinder as the fake snake <laughs> which always makes yes. me, always is it the same one once i noticed <laughs> yeah it's a big pink one so it's so it's, one, it's yeah. back so so that that's rather nice <laughs> so moving on to the the third story of the season and we've got the return of an old familiar face in nicholas courtney as the brigadier uh, Marjorie on Dead, which um, I would always probably used to say it was my favourite of the season, just purely for like seeing the Brigadier back, the nice little uh, nostalgia sequence that you get from uh, the unit years. But also, it's a very, very good, um, I think, compelling stories. It is a bit of a shame that um, like Peter Grimway wasn't given the chance to direct as well as obviously write the story, but. I like the kind of like the paradox and the, the flip-flopping between 1977 and 1983. But I think a lot of people just kind of like focus on this story now with the fact that it creates a whole can of worms with unit dating. <laughs> so where do we stand on Mordrin Undead, Denise? Mordrin undead, Mordrin undead, his brains came out of the top of his head. What can we tell you? That the Bauhaus song. <laughs> that, that'll be it, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there is so much to love. What a fantastic introduction for a new companion, for a start. Um, 
when I first started watching it, I made the rookie error of not turning on the new special effects. <laughs> so I had to slap myself on the wrist and do it properly because I do like the updated special effects. I just do. I mean, that sort of blue and green Quantel background on the Black Guardian, that didn't even make sense in 1983, did it? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it certainly doesn't make sense 20 years later. Yeah. Um, yes, I love it. I love it all. Um, I think, yeah, the unit dating thing is a bit of a problem because they're never going to properly resolve that to everybody's satisfaction, are they? You know, I mean, Sarah Jane Smith, you're not from 1980. If you'd worn that in 1980, you'd have been shot. Yeah, it didn't, <laughs> thing, it didn't start here. It didn't start with Morgan Undead. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it was lovely to have the Brigadier back. Yeah. And, uh, and I liked in um, Behind the Sofa as well, because Katie Manning hadn't seen the story before. And so she hadn't seen the scene where the doctor's trying to get um, the brigadier to remember his previous companions and you hear the sort of name echoed as he says them. And she was actually really choked up. And I thought that was so gorgeous. Um, but yeah, it's a lovely story. It's not my favourite of the season, but um, there is a great deal to love. I, I remember discussing at school uh, that after whichever episode it is, that whether has the doctor really regenerated? Um, there was a point where we we genuinely weren't entirely sure, or, or has something strange happened? Has he regenerated and also stayed the same? As if that could ever happen. Um, <laughs> it was genuine, and it's so easy to forget that. Now. And I, you know, I remind myself to try and watch these stories, and just like you know, Arc of Infinity isn't yet another story on Gallifrey in the eighties. It's actually the first one. Um, that they, they they had a freshness that, as freshness does, does, does it isn't preserved unless you remind yourself that it was. Um, uh, but um, yeah, the the, the brigadiers. I, I want to give special attention. The the Blu-ray revealed something to me that I had never noticed before, and it's subtle differences that they've made in the dressing of the brigadiers. Rather peculiar, sort of chalet where they're keeping him. Like, why hasn't he just got a normal room? But they're keeping him in this shed on the edge of campus. I guess a bit worried with his. I don't know because he's had, had a breakdown or whatever. <laughs> they think he's going to go to pieces in front of the boys and set a bad example. I don't know, but they. Um, but in in the seventies scene, his little kitchenette is completely spick and span, and then in. But in the eighties, there's a little bit of you see a little bit of damp on the wall, and it's just got a little bit, <laughs> little bit tatty. It just look. It looks like a ten year old, ten years old plastic cushion. But it was the first. This is the first time I def I ever saw a time travel thing that went to a time I can remember. The Silver Jubilee is my it's probably my earliest memories because I was like three or four, and uh, I remember that. I had a, I had a Silver Jubilee mug in in the cupboard, so it was yeah strange having Doctor Who visiting my past already when I'm only nine years old. I really think it's one of Nicholas Courtney's best ever performances. People will always say. Oh well, he's not playing the brigadier, and he's not not right. But he's really forced to act here, and he is marvelous. The the brigadier losing his temper because he can't remember things, and and he's not quite the brigadier we remember. And I, everyone always said, well, it's it doesn't sort of work that he's a school teacher. But there are so many ex army 
people who became teachers that yeah, I yeah, remember being yeah. taught by. Yeah, you know, our math, and, our math teacher was. Yeah, yeah, and it happened, and I thought, actually. For for once, Doctor Who is being quite realistic here that someone who has saved the world and done this has been cast out and is lost to sort of oblivion. And I think it's it's strangely moving and sad that he's ended up like this. And of course, Battlefield corrects this by making him the hero again. But I really liked that this is where he ended up and he's he's inspiring young minds and and things like that. I I I think it's absolutely beautiful piece of writing. And obviously Peter Grimwade is very very much uh, sort of influenced by his work on Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with particularly a um an ex-spy ending up teaching in a, a minor public school and things like that, and living in a caravan, and there's very obvious sort of similarities there. Um, but yeah, um, like Pete, the the and Denise, the the time travel story was was really, I thought, really well done. I thought that sort of aged eight, and I really like that. Now you get so few stories about time travel at this point in Doctor Who. You get lots of them now, yeah. but back then. Time travel was a means of going into the past or the future. You didn't have one that dealt with the consequences of time travel like this. Yeah, it's really hard because with the time travel plot, the, the, there's always that thing of, well, he's got a time machine. Particularly now he can fly it wherever he wants. He could just nip back and change everything uh, and fix it. And it's, so it's sort of it's a jeopardy killer. Uh, but this isn't about that at all. It's it's a consequence of... of, of yeah, it's 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 a very clever plot. Yeah, and those those wonderful scenes where you get something happening in 1983, and then the talking about what's happening in the scenes in 1977 as you see them in the next in the next scene, and it's really nicely done. I wonder how much proportion of viewers got it, like casual viewers, or, or because they did the, what was it? It was um, the time medal, wasn't it? It got complaints because people just people were just writing and complaining about them showing a monk wearing a digital wearing a watch uh, because mm. monks didn't wear watches, and this is a terrible thing to show in a children's <laughs> show. And, the, and the parents, obviously, obviously, the kids all got it, but the parents were just just were not on that frequency at all. Uh, well, Peter Davison said Peter Moffat didn't get it, did he? <laughs> yeah of course from that perspective as well 1983 and uh, 1977 they seemed like a huge gap in time you know to a younger person but now you know if i think about 2017 you know it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing has changed it's like the gap between now and much. father's day is longer than the gap between father's day and the flashbacks in father's day but that's nothing compared to this <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's a strange thing, but yes, that seemed like a huge gap in time. But now, of course, it's the blink of an eye for us oldies, isn't it? Yeah. We haven't mentioned Valentine Dial. It's great. We're not worthy to mention Valentine <laughs> Dial. I mean, he is superb, isn't he? He is a lot that thing. It's that thing. He's someone who your parents and probably your grandparents remember from the forties uh, when he was a huge star on the radio, and uh, even before he was literally older than television, um, or at least his fame is older than most people's television viewing would be. Yeah, so he, uh, great, good having him back. And the voice of Deep Thought in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the yes. Galaxy as well. Mm-hmm. And still an imposing presence, even though he had a dead bird on top of his head. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it's not a it's not a nuanced performance, is it? That is not what he's been hired to provide. It's not a nuanced look, really, is it? No. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. Obviously, you talk about the the deconstruction of the brigadier's character because that's the kind of thing that you know when they do it now in this day and age. And recently, we've had it seen done in the latest Indiana Jones film. You know, and, and I guess like fanboys up in arms. Like, How dare you, like, you know, move the character on and make him a, a grouchy, you know, old man who's not having these adventures anymore. And, and you know, these things have happened to his life and his character has developed. And, you know, had had they been doing, um, you know, fandom been online or whatever back in you know, 1983, would would they be up in arms at how the Brigadier was done? But, um, you know, it's an interesting, you know, just progression of the character. And um, even if, you know, we can't quite believe that Sergeant Benson has become a used car salesman. <laughs> I can believe it. Uh, 100%. Yeah. John Levine could become a used car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the jackets. Yeah. I mean, you guys have already said all the highlights. This is one of my, you know, favourites. Uh, the unit dating is only a problem if you're watching Doctor Who in order and trying to reconcile the timeline. But of course, by the time you get to Modern Undead, it's already become an impossible task. I think the 1977-83 dichotomy works perfectly within the universe of the story, so that's all that needs to be said. A couple of great guest performances earlier in the story, and it's a shame they're not there for parts 3 and 4, but Angus Mackay is the headmaster. Angus Mackay kept diaries, and he diaried his way through Modern Undead. So if you want to hear what he had to say about the making of the story, Jim Sangster did the audiobook narration for the corresponding episode of Doctor Who Literature. Well worth a listen to hear Angus Mackay's take on talking to Janet Fielding, for example. I mean, do all, do all, do all former president, Time Lord presidents, when they regenerate, do their former incarnations get to go off and be, uh, be, be uh, head teachers at public schools? <laughs> we'll know that if Timothy Dalton turns up as a teacher in uh, series one or two of uh, Shooty's uh, story. <laughs> It'd be perfect. That would be perfect. <laughs> I think obviously the unit dating controversy only came about really, didn't it? Because the original plan was to have um, William Russell back as uh, Ian Chesterton, hence the school setting. Uh, but obviously, when uh, he, he, I don't know if it, it was a, a clashing filming things or over he declined to come back um i think he got a better offer basically he got, he got, yeah. he got some, somebody offered him more money to do something else instead so he wasn't <laughs> sentimental yeah. yeah so obviously we had the uh you know and, and it's not a lesser story for it and, and like you say it does work it does work completely so um the next story is obviously the middle part of the so-called black guardian trilogy and we've now had turlo played by Mark Strickson, who joins the uh, TARDIS crew. And this story sees the departure of the wonderful uh, Nyssa, played by Sarah Sutton. Um, this, to me, this story um, is has great potential um, and feels very much like a season 18 story uh, because we see the return of, obviously, Stephen Gallagher as the writer. Um but bizarrely, I rewatching it for this podcast, I just felt that the pace was just so slow. It was like an arthritic snail. And I'm really surprised because Mary Ridge is the director of this episode. 
and she did some fantastic um, directorial work in Blake 7. And it's just, like, really weird how then when she makes the transition over to Doctor Who, it just doesn't quite work. Um, as a uh, Maximum Power guy, Si, what do you think? Well, I, um, if you listen to Fraser Gregory, obviously this is my favourite story in the whole world ever. So um, I have met the Garm um, earlier this year. Um, so, um, yeah, I, you know... Terminus is a great story that's flawed by its production. And this is the story that needed a hugely gothic, over-the-top, large performances. Um, and I think that could have saved it because the script is all there. It just doesn't quite pull off. And instead, you've got um, a ship full of grey corridors and beige corridors and then green corridors on film um, with crawling around and the worst robot this side of Project Avalon as well. That, <laughs> you know, and nothing, all the elements are fine and the, the casting is really good, but nothing seems to quite come together how it should do. And I don't know whether that's Mary Ridge's fault or whether it's the fault of suddenly having studios taken away from you and everything sort of falling apart around your ears or, or, or is it Roger Lim bringing the atmosphere down again i don't know it's yeah it's just not quite there and it's really frustrating and it, it, it doesn't for me it just it's got no drive there's no ironically when that's part of the plot there's no that the entire <laughs> universe is at stake here and it they're just and, and tegan and turlo sit in a corridor for two episodes no they sit in a they sit in a hatch under a corridor and they talk to you and it's actually that's an opportunity for doing some interesting stuff, and, and like, like, and it is interesting hearing them talk about the, themselves, but they don't click at all. They just like Turlo, just you know, would you ever murder someone? Tegan's like, so that's a weird question, and they don't really. They, they, they could sort of be bonding in those moments, but instead, they're just sort of proving they've got nothing in common. Uh, and Lisa Goddard is not one of the great performances of Doctor Who. She's Please. Just, <laughs> like she's in an advert. She's acting as if she's in an advert, and she's just like, "What's happening here, Doctor? Shall I do this, Doctor?" And it's like, I mean, it's not acting. It's not even acting. She's just Lisa Goddard saying words. I don't. I, I'm sorry. I don't know why. Ooh, that- yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So sorry. I'm not. This is this is one I'm not on the fence about. <laughs> but I know there are people who love it, and we'll, and, and uh, yeah. But uh, and and just resolve it. The, the whole thing is just resolved by a big lever that's stuck, and so we have to go and get somebody to just push the lever a bit harder, and that's it. <laughs> She's <laughs> okay. a great big dog. <laughs> yeah. With eyes. Which again is a fantastic concept, but it's just not done quite well enough. <laughs> But what? Yeah, but what? What could they do? Yeah, you know, um, it's like it just feels like there's not a momentum. You know, as a two-parter, it would probably have worked because you'd be thrown into this thing, and then they'd be, oh my god, it's, it's, we're all in peril. It's the end of the universe, and there's a terrible disease. <laughs> I think it would work as a two-parter, but I know you can say that of any story. Uh, well, not any story, but you know what I mean. That's that's a, it's not a jet get out of jail card uh, for a story that just doesn't have enough stuff happening in it. Now, I have a distinctive memory of this story when it was due to be broadcast, and I don't know where I've got this from. I've tried looking up to see if it was, like, rumoured anywhere, but I remember there being a distinct rumour going around the playground, and I don't know even if it came from Doctor Who Monthly, 
that obviously because we're having returning elements in each story throughout the season, that the Ice Warriors were going to be in this story. Huh. And I can kind of see that if... Obviously, there's no internet back in 1983 or 1982 when this was being filmed. Mm. So how that kind of like got around, was it because like the kind of like the veneers, um, like costumes are kind of like vaguely Ice Warrior-like and that leaked out somewhere or got into the press or or something? But I distinctly remember as a kid that kind of like rumour going around and then being quite disappointed when... (laughs) It actually didn't turn up. <laughs> no, I'd never heard that one. Yeah. But that's this is the period now, isn't it, where fans are getting invited into this gallery to watch it and, and, and then going away and writing things in fanzines. Fascinating period of of of, uh, of, of, of things being able to leak and things like that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know whether that's an urban myth or not, but like I said, I, I had no knowledge of fanzines or anything. I didn't even like come across like kind of like fanzines until kind of like around about the, the Sylvester McCoy era. So mm. um, I do have a distinct memory of that. So either that or it's uh, the memory cheats, as uh, John Nathan Turner used to say. <laughs> What's your opinions, Jason? I mean, it's very easy to take a 40-year-old story and say this bit of production doesn't work, this bit of design doesn't work. I mean, we've had 40 years to hone our criticisms. I will say Peter Davison is very clearly bored with the story. There's a moment in part two where he's standing with his arms folded and a sour expression on his face, which is not very doctorish body language. Even in a poorly made story that they didn't like, you couldn't imagine William Hartnell or Patrick Troughton tanking a scene like that. That being said, let's forget about the Roger Lynn music. Let's forget about Mary Ridge. Again, these are old complaints. The novelization. It is written by Stephen Gallagher, even under a pen name. It is up to the point that it came out, the longest Target book in about seven or eight years. It's about 159 pages. It makes the story work because all of a sudden you understand the hard sci-fi that is underpinning the story. And you also understand that it is a critique, a harsh critique of for-profit healthcare. And I rediscovered the story at about the time that Obamacare, or as it's really called, the Affordable Care and Patient Protection Act, was being debated in Congress. And then again, as the Republicans were trying unsuccessfully to abolish and repeal Obamacare during the first Trump administration. God knows what's going to happen during the second. As a critique of for-profit health care, and you guys are going to have a lot of trouble in the UK over the next 30 and 40 years as the NHS is dismantled, It's really an effective bit of left-wing agitation. If you take away the production, this is a very good script. If you take away the acting, it's a very good script. If you take away Roger Lim's music, it's a very good script. So criticizing the story for how it was made is easy. Looking at the script and enjoying the novelization, I think this is a very underrated story with a lot more to teach us. And to be honest, just because it's old and poorly made, I don't think it's any worse than Wild Blue Yonder, which I didn't enjoy very much. I would probably watch this more sooner than, than I would watch Wild Blue Yonder again ah. because I enjoy the underlying meaning of the script. So, yeah, I think Terminus is fine. I have no problem with it. I'm going to out myself as a Terminus aficionado as well, I think. Um, one of the things that really makes it for me is the performance of Peter Benson as I think he is absolutely superb. He was like very, very cool, hippie-ish, 
idiot savant kind of character who's trying to fix the problem, but of course he didn't understand the entire severity of the problem. He is a fantastic performance and he has the best lines in the show, really. I was also interested in it, of course, because of the time that it was made, we were in the grip of the Cold War still. Um, As a 14-year-old, I was becoming aware that we could all be vaporised on somebody else's whim at any other time, at any time, or have to face a long death from radiation sickness. And so there's this story where there is radiation, but it's being used as a very rudimentary cure for a disease similar to leprosy by the looks of things. I think there there is a lot to like here. Um, I was also... As a fairly new baked pan, I was interested that it was the same guy who wrote Warrior's Gate. So I had high expectations for it. But uh, I liked the scenes at the start. I liked um, them going into Adric's room because that episode was shown on the first anniversary of Adric's death, wasn't it? it? That was its original broadcast date. So it was really sweet that they had a little sting of Adric's theme music and you got to go into his room even though everything was going to go straight into a big burning bin but um, according to Turlo but yeah there is much to like and Nissa's departure was very touching these days of course you know you look at it and you just get a bit fixated on Lisa Goddard's hair but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, the fact that an entire civilization has designed um, spacesuits to accommodate the hair of Lisa Goddard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most 80s style space pirates with hairspray ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, and blue eyeliner. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, as, as a companion exit, how does it rank? Because uh, at least she gets to go out doing sciencey stuff. It's not. It, it's. And. and uh, and, and it's only I think it's on the interview or, or on and on the notes accompanying this Blu-ray that they emphasise that there were there are deliberate moments where she's a little bit tetchy with the Doctor for being a bit for, for talking down to her in the stories running up to it, and that wasn't just generics. People always complain about Eric Sayward making people argue, and I don't mind that at all. Not not up to a point. Oh, this sounds like he was making them tone it down when you see what they're like in a car together. <laughs> 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 Actually, they're on a really nice day. <laughs> but um, but in fact, in the two story in the stories preceding this, mo- there's a couple of moments where the Doctor says something a little bit patronising to Nissa, and and she she. Clips, clips back at him a little bit, which was actually them sowing the seeds of this, and and they, it's a little bit rushed as it as it will be in these days. But um, no, yeah, she she's got a, a reason to go and science is her thing. It, it it does add up that she'd want to do that. Um, great, so, so unfortunate that all her clothes fall off. But again, maybe that's something that the the fifteenth Doctor could associate with. <laughs> uh, there's nothing, there's no no new idea. But it's a yeah, it's a lovely little teary scene at the end. I think it's really nicely played, and you can you can see there's genuine affection between Tegan and Nissa, and Nissa and the Doctor, um, and she kisses him, and we don't get kisses <sighs> in the eighties. We've had one scene where where Davison is allowed to put his arm around Janet Fielding earlier in the season, and one scene where where Sarah Sutton is allowed to to give him a kiss, and yeah. I think that's it's it's a really lovely and touching little scene. I mean, and particularly, I think maybe it, some of it is 
from seeing the Matthew Sweet interview with Sarah Sutton, where she's saying she didn't want to leave and she was told she was leaving. You know, maybe it's some of that sort of coming across as well. Yeah, I feel really sad for her that in, in, in the interview. Um, uh, and as you know, right, that that le- was the leaving scene, the one that they had to come back and do when they were making the the King's Demons. Yes, and she was really yeah, upset because she didn't yeah. get to do it and had to come back. Yeah, it was filmed under uh, like quite tense uh, circumstances, wasn't it? So they they were literally told you've got one take before the cameras and and the lights get switched off at ten o'clock at night, which is what. Being the policy was in the studios at the time, so you know, literally just one take and, and that's it, you know. So, the fact that they put as much emotion in it is uh, really, really uh, touching and just shows how good the, the actors actually are. Mm-hmm. Wasn't this the period, the point where Davison had to decide if he was staying for a fourth year? He'd already, he was already doing one more. Um, yeah. and that's the story, isn't it? Yeah, and it yeah. and, the, and the, and this was what I mean. He wasn't planning on doing four anyway, but this is what made his mind made didn't made made him confident that yeah. there is a story also. I think somewhere on this set about how he actually did go and have words with J and T about how Sarah had been treated, particularly sort of on um, the production of this story. He was not happy with with that, and he was not happy about the way her her leaving do was handled and things like that. And actually had words so. Yeah, because she was so young and she'd been a child star, hasn't she? She'd been working longer yeah. than any of them. I think she, yeah. she'd been working since she was a, since she was a, 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 quite a little girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, and, and, I mean, should we do, is the interview on this disc? Should we talk about the interview? Should we roll into that? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Because mm, it's um, in a way, I almost wish that they'd done separate ones because they do work really well together. But when you've got if you've got Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton sat next to each other, that means you're going to get seventy five percent Janet Fielding content. <laughs> <laughs> that's just how she rolls. Mm-hmm. But even with that, like there's a, and there's a point where he even at one point he asked Sarah Sarah Sutton the question. So oh, yeah, well, I did feel like I was a little bit overlooked. And then Janet's like, "You felt overlooked. Let me tell you." In a nutshell. But. Yeah, and and she talks about being uh, always having been really nurtured and looked after by people who were really aware that she was a child, and 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 then to suddenly come into this in, in things like Moon Stallion and and other things that she'd worked on before, uh, and and then to come into this into Doctor Who and just be like, it's a, this is a factory. Get on there, say your words, and be finished by ten o'clock. It was you know a, a, clearly a real culture shock for her and she and she's it's sad when she says she, you know, she knows she could have done much better she feels if she'd had a bit a bit of mentoring to help her do that transition from child acting to to, to regular drama acting yeah i think maybe this is something that shows jnt's inexperience as a producer because matthew waterhouse has said exactly the same thing he was a 17 year old thrust into difficulties with Tom and Lala and just left to get on with it. So there's obviously something, this is not necessarily JNT's strong point. His strong point is getting the show made, but he's not looking after his cast as well as he should do, which is, is something of a pity. So I've, yeah, like always, Matthew Sweet gets the best out of anyone that he interviews. He gets new stories. He's not going down the obvious routes. And it's, it's just fascinating to hear sort of what they think of their time and their experiences it's yeah it's quite enlightening so to speak <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, it's, it's quite refreshing. And I think, obviously, it, like you say, it shows how good Matthew Sweet is as an interviewer because anybody else doing that interview, it could have easily been, I know we joke it's 75% Janet Fielding, but I did actually feel watching it that Sarah did actually manage to have her say, not all the time because Janet is renowned for... <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right, yeah, the quantity is... Sorry, the quality's yeah. there. He gets, exactly. he gets to it. Yeah, yeah, good point. I find she's getting... She's speaking more, the more of these extras and behind the sofas and things that she does. I think she she is finding her voice and her confidence more all of the time and we're learning more about her and... Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, I, I met her years and years and years ago at a, a comic con in Manchester, and literally she was kind of like just sat there and kind of like go, you know, a bit like as in quite shocked that anybody would come up to her and have a conversation with her and, and ask for her autograph, and she's kind of like, you know, hi, you know, make that out to you know Jason, blah, blah, and kind of like it's like, well, there you go, there's your photo. And it's like almost as if she was still kind of like not sure of what to do, um, mm. you know, in that kind of circumstance. So it's nice to see her kind of like come out of her shell a, a lot more. And I thought even in the, uh, like, you know, the driving uh, <laughs> feature, you know, she holds her own. She definitely does, yeah. That's one thing that I love with the big Finnish stories that are just her and Peter Davison as well. I think they are such a good team. They are always worth a listen. Well, Peter's always said that, you know, he, he liked the Fifth Doctor and Nyssa as a kind of like, I thought that relationship worked the best and had he had more say in the production of the show, that's what would have gone forward. He wouldn't have had the cluttered, crowded TARDIS, which, you know, he had through all of it. He literally, it's, it's mm. only his last story where it's just him and one companion, isn't it, really? Mm. But, it, and again, Matthew Sweet does a really, really good job of uh, just getting some stories uh, out of them. And, the, you know, they're talking about their time with the show and, and it's nice that they bounce off each other because, you know, sometimes Janet doesn't quite recall something and then, that, you know, Sarah then, like, steps in and says, oh, well, actually, do you, do you remember this? And then, you know, it, it's vice versa. It works the best way. So he's he's great at getting these, um, you know, kind of anecdotes and, and stories that sometimes you've not even heard before um, out of uh, the actors that he interviews. Yeah, yeah. Because they go to Jodrell Bank, don't they? But, uh, which was supposedly retrofitted to be the location for Legopolis and Castrovalva. Um, but, uh, it wasn't really, because it was the Pharos project, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And um, the Legopolis scenes were filmed at the BBC monitoring station at Cavisham Park, apparently, but the ones in Castrovalva were filmed somewhere completely different. But Cavisham Park was just up the road from where I grew up. And I even did a few days' temp work once many years oh, yeah. ago. But, uh, <laughs> That was cool. Beautiful grounds. I am digressing again. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the bank is literally about uh, about thirty miles away from uh, where I live, and uh, I I keep meaning to go again. Um, I, I last took went about oof probably about six seven years ago when I took my son, and he was like perhaps a little bit too young to take it all in. 
Um, so I'd keep meaning like, you know, to go again. But um, since COVID and uh, the pandemic, their opening times have been very, very uh, sporadic. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, I think that's one for spring next year. Uh, to go along and uh, reenact uh, scenes from Logopolis and Castrovalva. Mm-hmm. Careful and Peter now. Mark had a had a not trip to Jodrell Bank this year. Yeah, we, well, we went to. We, yeah, we got within spitting distance of it, and and Colin too. Um, we the mm-hmm. three of us were, were all converging um, uh, for a uh, trap one. Uh, we were intended to do a trap one field report from there, but it was it was one of those weekends in the spring, and it was raining so hard all weekend. Uh, the uh, the car park was completely flooded, and and they'd been there that we only had day tickets for the Sunday. And, uh, and on the Saturday, on the night before, on the Saturday, they'd been there until like three in the morning, dragging cars out with tractors. So uh, the word went out on Sunday: please don't bother, please don't bother if you're driving, because you, you might get in, but you'll never get out. Uh, so we uh, we all went we all went to the pub instead. <laughs> Had a happy ending. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> all's well that ends well. Yeah. Went for a bit of grog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> A bit of grog, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Enlightenment by Barbara Clegg, uh, which again I think is another gem of the uh, the season. It's another one that people like, kind of like, really like um, hold up, um, basically uh, because it's just a fantastic concept. And uh, that brilliant end of episode one cliffhanger that it has, Um, and. On the collection box set that we've got, we've got yet another version of Enlightenment. So this is the third version. We get the transmitted version. We get the special edition condensed version that we had on the DVD release several years ago. And then we get the transmitted version, but with brand new FX uh, on this story, which I dipped into. And I'm sorry, I'm a bit of an old-fashioned. I really don't think the CG work is good enough to replace the excellent model effects that the BBC did in 1983. What's everybody else's thoughts? Well, I thought exactly the same, because this is some of the best model work the show had, so I didn't... I've never quite got why everyone is desperate to replace all the effects in this story, because generally, this is one of the, the stories this year where the effects work really holds up well. So, yeah, I, I just... Yeah, like you, I dipped in and out, but I wasn't particularly impressed either, Jason. I got annoyed with Peter Bloody Davison on the uh, behind the sofas because he hates them. He's going, oh, look at those ships, they're awful. <laughs> I would, I'd, I'd have words with him. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> they're brilliant. It's like Clash of the Titans or something. You don't, you don't want Clash. The, you don't want the Ray Harryhausen creatures replacing with um, with CGI. Or, but, but Denise, you're more. You seem, you seem to be more open minded about this than us. Like, are we? Are we just a load of fogies? And are you enjoying it much more? <laughs> we need to get with the. Uh... Um, when it comes to enlightenment. I absolutely adore the special edition. I think that it is fabulous. And I think that the effects in the new version are not as good as the effects in the special edition. Don't hate me, folks. No, Don't it's fine. So that's the naughty, the, the naughty anything, the DVD version. That, yeah, mm-hmm. that, yeah basically... the DVD. I think, I think it works so much better. I mean, I think the original shit, They were very good for their time, I think, because also it's a part of a director's cut. I think, you know, 
it it all seems to flow a lot more naturally and more aesthetically. It works better for me than I found the new effects did on this. But uh, I'm probably wrong because I frequently. <laughs> well, no, it's because like yeah, some of us know. do get. I don't. You know, I'm watching it. I'm so nostalgic when I'm watching it that anything that isn't the same as when I saw it when I was nine is just wrong. <laughs> uh, so oh. yeah, you'll you'll be more open minded. That's all. But um, I, I the thing with the that, that the the what is it sixty minute version or the shortened version uh, special edition? Basically, they just she just it was the same director, wasn't it? Fiona Cumming was in charge of it. And yeah. She just mm. she just cut yeah. out every word of Lee John from Kajigugu. Oh, <laughs> he wasn't in Kajigugu. He was in imagination. <laughs> but yeah, Lee John. I mean, he not not an actor, but no, he's brilliant done a little in his him. way. And yeah. you know, he's so pouty and so cute, isn't he? <laughs> yes, I'm sure now he would be called fierce and uh, uh, and all the other drag race terms that we're not. Colin Bates makes a good point, doesn't he, on the behind the sofa when uh, Lee John has his two lines and he says, "Well, he certainly uh, earned his money there, didn't he?" <laughs> yeah, it was Colin Baker who overplayed yeah. every line in Ark of Infinity. <laughs> Colin Baker reacting to somebody in a small role, acting as if they're the star of the show, is mm-hmm. quite. A- <laughs> recursive, isn't it? <laughs> but well, just... you know, it gave it a good shot, didn't he? Really, I mean, yeah, and it's not a big role, but yeah, but the cast of this and um, Keith Brown and Christopher, sorry, Keith Barron and Christopher Brown uh, as Ma- as Striker and Mariner, uh, the way that they've taken on that, because I, I really, I know. That like why people say okay these are the Eternals they're so starchy and, and they're these hollow people and you can completely see it and that's how they are and they're, and they're so distant and of course they're in, a, in an Edwardian style because that's the environment they're inhabiting. Then you look at Linda Barron uh, and of course she's all Jolly Rogering and, and pirating it up, but in a I'm way. That slapping her. Oh yeah! If any thigh was ever going to be slapped in Doctor Who, it's going to be hers. And and she doesn't turn up to episode three, I think. Does she? She's a yeah. yeah. That's surprising. Um, uh, sorry, excuse me. I've got my, my colds coming through. I keep doing sniffing and things. It's really bad to do on a podcast. But um, but of course, in a way, that's her covering up her hollowness in a in a in a just in a different format. She's she's an empty person too. They all are. Uh, and, and they do it. The, the the Edwardians do it in that stuffy way, and she does it in an over the top, extrovert way. But still, she's, they've got that same hunger. They're both. They're all, um, you know, yeah, preying on people. And for her, that, that the way that Turlo entertains her for a while, and but she can completely uh, run rings around him. Of course, it's nice character development for him too, though. Realizing that he's out of his depth with with people mm. like that. What are your thoughts, Jason? I'll say this in defense of Lee John. Again, we've had 40 years to laugh at him. He is playing Captain Rack's sidekick. His performance needs to match what Linda Barron is doing, and he does it perfectly. And it's only three scenes, so it doesn't bother me at all. Linda Barron reaches through the screen from 40 years ago and grabs me in, and I am completely in awe of her. The episode one cliffhanger is, like I said, the thing that turned me into a fan forever, and I've never voluntarily missed the show since I saw it. My daughter was my guest on the Doctor Who literature episode for the novelization. This is easily within my top 20 Doctor Whos of all time. Yeah, so, me too. Yay for <laughs> enlightenment. Mm-hmm. I think also it's one of those stories 
that you can show to a non-fan as an example of the era and they will probably find something to like in there. It's It could be a gateway drug to making Davison fans out of some of the not-we. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's what I love about it is it's such a contrast to everything around it. It's so different to 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 all the other stories this season. And this is what I love about 80s Doctor Who is that one week you've got um spaceships and corridors and running around one week you've got time travel one week you've got possession and an ancient civilization coming back and then suddenly you've got 17th century and 19th century ships in space having a race against each other and it's so imaginative and brilliant and special because of that i think it's a beautiful story and it's it's kind of big scale, but it's also kind of small scale as well. And it's about the characters. And and in any other show, the um, the line "Oh, what is love?" would be a a, a gateway to someone snogging someone's face <laughs> off. Usually in Star Trek, that's yeah. the way. <laughs> I, I do not understand your human emotion, love. But when when um, Christopher Brown, to, uh, Brown turns round and just says, "I just want existence," and you fascinate me because you're. How can you live like this? It's just a beautiful piece of writing. It's so so good, and it's such a crime. Barbara Clegg never managed to get another story to the screen. I think she could have been one of the one of the gems of of eighties Doctor Who, and I think this is one of the gems of eighties Doctor Who. Yeah, episode one is, is is such a brilliant first episode in the way it sets up the mystery and then completely wrong foots you to give yeah. you that. Mm-hmm. You think that they're on. It, it's very similar to um, uh, Carnival of Monsters, uh, which, again, also has a very, very similar first episode. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got the scenes that are with Borg, um on on the planet um if you take those out it's a very very similar setup the doctor and the companions they arrive on what they think is a ship they then go for exploring and then suddenly you're then given this huge twist you know at the end of the episode um so yeah and then it just it and it's not one of those stories that then comes up with a brilliant kind of twist and then disappoints it sees the story through and it really does um tell an excellent tale and it wraps up um turlow's journey and and the black guardian um trilogy off really really well with obviously you know the revelation that you know it's not enlightenment wasn't the prize it was Mm -hmm. the choice at the end and the music is beautiful malcolm clark doesn't often do beautiful music But he really, really does here. And I think this is his best score, along with Earthshock, for different reasons. But this is just magnificent. They're so different, aren't they? But They, they but, are. So, yeah. yeah. But they're both spooky and creepy in a way that mm-hmm. perfectly suits the tone of the story that they are. In an, in an era of Doctor Who where spookiness and creepiness aren't usually at the forefront. Uh, no. Not really mm-hmm. where the early 80s Doctor Who vibe. But wow, he he, he gets it. 
So moving on from a story that you think is a historical when you first like uh, it starts, and then it obviously gives you that twist. We then obviously end up with not the intended season finale of the show because we were originally supposed to end with the return of the Daleks, but that was scuppered, uh, Shada-like, but they didn't even get to uh, do any filming, did they? It was just completely like uh, wiped out by BBC technician strikes. Um, so we've got a bit of a truncated season before we come along to the proper anniversary story with The King's Demons, um, which I'd not watched for ages, uh, and I watched it here. It's a, it's a nice little two-parter, isn't it? Just, it's only a personal footnote, but this has the, the, the distinction of being the first Doctor Who story I ever video recorded on my one videotape that I owned for about 80, for the first year or two after we got a video recorder, so I watched it over and over. I know it, know it almost by heart, um, and it's, it's just another universe when you're in a world where that's possible. So it's hard to imagine a world where it wasn't. But I think... I think this has been miscategorized as a mass, as a story with the master in it, because I don't think it is. I think it's the. I think anyone who had just watched the Time Meddler, who then sat down to watch this, and that's all they've ever seen of Doctor Who, they're going to think it's clearly the same guy. He's, he's just mucking about <laughs> in a, in a primary school history syllabus for no particular reason other than because he thinks it'll be fun to muck everything up, and uh, just vague notions of of changing the future. But why would he really care? And and yeah, I just think Anthony Ainley is playing the meddling monk in this. It just happens to look like the master. That, that's a comedian arch or something. I don't know. That's my head sharks <laughs> <laughs> You insult the king. <laughs> What's funny about the king's demons is. Doctor Who fans spend years complaining about how long the Pertwee serials are because in the 80s you watch them as movie formats and these were not made as movie formats these were made as weekly serials so it's almost a knee-jerk reaction you mentioned any John Pertwee story that is more than four parts long and one of the first three comments on Twitter will always be oh it's two episodes too long now in the 80s we finally get a two-episode Doctor Who story, then the same fans say, oh, this one is terrible. It's not long <laughs> enough. I love King's Demons. I think Gerald Flood gives a wonderful performance as the king. I love the song. The incidental music really fits the story, which is not always the case in season 20. This is one of the better scores. It's a nifty little plot. I was a big fan of medieval times when I was a kid growing up, so this story definitely spoke to me. And, yeah, Turlo doesn't get a lot to do, but Let's talk about two of the extras. This is one of the two stories that a new making of documentary was made for on the disc. And they interview everybody from the cast. Christopher Villiers, who plays the um, the Lord's son, and who later goes on to a, a role in Mummy on the Orient Express. He is hilarious. He is just giving all these funny, catty comments about the production. It's unlike Janet Fielding, whose stick is she hates everything, Christopher Villiers is genuinely funny in taking down this story. And then you have the interview with Isla Blair talking about her husband, Julian Glover, and, and his time on Doctor Who. That was very nice. Frank Windsor is interviewed on the making of documentary, and I'm like, wow, that's great. He's still alive. So I Googled him. Turns out he died in September 2020. This must have been one of the last things that he ever filmed. Oh. Given the mm-hmm, lack yeah. of COVID protocols, Ooh. I assume this was shot in 2018 or 2019. So right towards the right. end of the line, has already been passed away for three years as the discs came out. How wonderful that we have this final interview with him. And then you read mm-hmm. the production file. So 
my favorite parts of the DVDs are not the behind the sofas. Um, my favorite part is the the BD-ROM material. You plug in the disc, you open up your your browser, you read the camera scripts, you read the rehearsal scripts, and you read the production file, which for King's Demon is 185 pages. And a lot of it you can skim through. You know, it's maps of the parking lot for location filming. It's um, wardrobe requests. I kind of skip past that stuff. You can see how the production team, and you can blame John Nathan Turner for this, was not in control of anything. So John Nathan Turner is complaining that they never get the set designer they ask for on a story because he was submitting his requests too late. Tony, Tony Virgo, the director, who never got to work on Doctor Who again because the production of the story was such a disaster, he sends this angry, firm memo to the designers of Chameleon saying, we had to do a remount of the story. We couldn't finish it in studio because the Chameleon prop doesn't work. We have to come back for a day a month later and reshoot several scenes. I expect the Chameleon prop to be in full working order. So if you are the chameleon prop master and you read that, your ears have to be burning. But that wasn't enough. This is what's beautiful about Tony Virgo, who also is terrific on the documentary. He reads the memo and realizes that full working order is not even specific enough. So he puts an asterisk at the bottom of the page and he gives a definition of what full working order means. The prop is able <laughs> to move and read its lines as scripted. And the chameleon prop never worked, and they had to get rid of it. And it's very funny. JNT was sold a bill of goods. He passes it on to Tony Virgo. The prop doesn't work. Not Tony Virgo's fault at all. The production is a disaster. Tony Virgo effectively gets fired from Doctor Who completely for absolutely no good cause. It's a very good story in spite of chameleon. <laughs> and then you read the rehearsal scripts when they still thought this was going to be the penultimate story of the season. The rehearsal script for part two, number one, contains a lot of dialogue that wasn't used and then appears later on in Terrence Dudley's novelization. The rehearsal script ends with the same scene that Frontios ends with, the TARDIS being trapped in the Daleks' time carter. So Eric Sayward just used it for the end of Frontios a year later. And here it is on the BD-ROM. I love the BD-ROM. It's my favorite part of the discs. It's the ultimate value added for value added material. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, I like the story. It's great fun, but it doesn't kind of resolve itself more than stop when it gets to fifty minutes. And it's just, <laughs> yeah, there's just enough yeah. done. It's yeah. It's, it was that brilliant bit. Turlo gets that amazing line. Brandon <laughs> goes, "I don't know who you are, but I'm going away now." Which <laughs> is like, yeah. But it's saved like by the fruity performances and everyone having so much fun doing it. So yeah. And as Jason said, the incidental music is really good. And as a kid and as an adult, I love the cliffhanger with. Oh, my dear doctor, you have <laughs> been naive. <laughs> well, he has been on that occasion because, you know, even a blind cat would see through that disguise. <laughs> my, my, my ex-partner used to say, this is the one story where um, the Doctor, Tegan and Turlo should come out of the TARDIS, look around and instantly point and say, it's the master. <laughs> and then <laughs> it's all done. <laughs> Uh, to piggyback on Sai's point, the novelization completely rewrites the end of the story. So the novelization has a much more detailed and better ending, by the way. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, so of course, when I was 14, I was deeply amused by the line, uh, oh, look at the size of that bed, another way of keeping warm. <laughs> and it still makes me chortle today because I am a child who grew up on Benny Hill and Carry On films. And it's up there with, with there's also the the wonderfully misheard line by many a fan, oh, you're Willie's weak doctor. It's time you regenerate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a great uh, new making of documentary. And like you say, it is a great shame Tony Virgo just didn't get to direct anymore. It's like, it's almost as if, and no, we know the history of John Nathan Turner, but he really did make a rod for his own back. You know, by getting into these spats with, uh, you know, Lovett Bickford and mm-hmm. Peter Grantwade, you know, and obviously Tony Virgo, and like says, like, well, you know, just because something's gone wrong, I'm going to blame it all on you, and I'm not going to hire you again, you know. And it's like, yeah, and this was a man who wanted to get rid of K9 because K9 never worked, and then wants to replace it <laughs> in 1983 with a robot. A real robot. Yeah, well, that's going to work well, JNT, isn't it? Well, whilst I was watching The King's Demons, I actually thought, well, yeah, all right, the prop didn't work, and it was a tragedy that, you know, the guy who designed it, you know, tragically died shortly after, and he was the only one who could ever program the bloody thing. So that was like the BBC visual effects department were then like, oh, we don't know what to do. Um, But it was a great concept because it could change its shape so you know that's a gift which you think if russell t davis had that he'd have the guest star of the week every week as like Absolutely. chameleon you know yeah the what have you taken on the form of beryl reed let's have ernie wise as yeah. chameleon <laughs> well, you know it's the kind of concept that you think you really did miss a chance there because if mm-hmm. you if you didn't have Tegan and Turlo in the TARDIS, you could have literally, that's self-publicity for every story, get a big mm. actor in for four episodes, guest down as Chameleon, you use the prop once in the first episode where he changes into the, the guest actor and then end of the episode, you don't even have to show it changing then. You just yeah. do it, you know, repeat it through season 21 and then write the bloody robot out. You know, so it is a shame that they didn't like use that concept. You know, because I remember seeing the King's Demons as a kid and being in awe of that robot and not having any idea that it should have worked a bit better. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, it looks Lord, great. It yeah. That's like C3PO. <laughs> yeah. But the problem was it looks it looks to I know plenty of people who would just say, Oh, it's just a guy in a suit, isn't it? No, but yeah. yeah, it looks too much like a man in the suit. Well, isn't it Kate Manning who thinks it's a man in the suit, or was it Sophie Aldred on behind yeah, the Yeah, someone in the behind the sofas yeah, does, yeah, don't yeah. they? Yeah. <laughs> and I'd just like to give a shout out to my mum, who was always very disappointed that the song never made it to Doctor Who: The Music Volume Two because she really <laughs> liked the song <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I love the song. Yeah. As you say, it's it's a little kind of like nice little historical. It's a bit like Black Orchid. I actually prefer it to Black Orchid, you know, in a way, because you've got the 
Yeah, and they've hit on a thing, haven't they? They've decided this is one way of doing a two-episode Doctor Who story. Rather than having to do a six-parter, to make up the number of episodes, do a story that's not really got that much... It's, it's not. Whereas the Awakening is is different. The Awakening is a four part story being told at twice the speed of, as usual. But this and Black Orchid are, are, and Canine and Company as a theme uh, are uh, Deadly Dudley deliberately writing something that's got fewer parts than a normal Doctor Who story has, so that you can get it over and done with in in, in, in under fifty minutes. Which I mean, obviously, who who would ever try and make Doctor Who stories that are less than fifty minutes, less than ninety minutes long? Ah. It's just a cra- crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> So season 20 then went off the air and then obviously uh, it then came back with the feature length special later on in the year uh, broadcast first in the US uh, on the actual anniversary itself, the 24th of November (laughs) 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 Then broadcast two days later uh, as part of Children in Need Night for some bizarre reason so it was spoiled by having big Ticket tapes of like phone numbers and and only if you were in the north, we didn't get that in the south. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I know because um, years and years after, uh, a mate of mine um, at school like kind of like said, "Oh, by the way, I've got the Five Doctors on video." And he's like, "What?" Yeah, 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 I've still got it from when I recorded it as a kid. And he was like, "Well, okay, can I borrow that?" And I remember like taking it home, putting it in the video recorder, and I, I had the Terry Wogan bit at the beginning, and then literally I'm sitting there and watching it, and then suddenly there's all these bloody things. Well, it's interesting you mention um, videotaping this because this was the first Doctor Who story that I was allowed to keep forever. And my dad, I remember <laughs> breaking the tab off the tape after yeah. we recorded it. Oh, yeah. It was so wow. special. This was never going to be recorded over, and I was allowed to keep this one forever. So this was hugely formative. We'd had a video recorder since Arc of Infinity, so we'd been recording one week's, two one week's of episodes, then recording over them with the next week's one. But this was the first one that was allowed to stay forever and ever, and it Have did. you still got it? I haven't still got the tape, but I did have it, and... For a very very long time, and it is probably my most watched Doctor Who story. I absolutely love this story to pieces. It is perfect. <laughs> it's not perfect, but it is perfect. <laughs> it is. So, with the benefit of it being broadcast first in the US, the obvious question is, Jason, did you watch it? On its premiere. In November 1983, I had not yet heard of Doctor Who. I did not watch the show until, this is funny, my actual first time watching those first 45 seconds of Time Flight was November 23rd, 1984. So my PBS cycled around to the Five Doctors probably in December 84. That would have been the first time that I saw it as a four-part story. I had no access to fandom. I didn't know what TWM was. I didn't realize this was a 90-minute movie that was made separate and apart from season 20 on a different budget and then was cut into a four-part syndicated version. I only saw the four-part story, and it was a very long time before I learned that this was not, in fact, a four-parter that was made directly after The King's Demons. I loved it. I didn't know Doctor Who. I came in with season 20. I had to reverse-engineer the history of the show using the clues that season 20 gave me. I didn't know about past doctors. So I learned about all that 
from the five doctors. And then my PBS station decided to run the thing again during their pledge drive season. So PBS does have federal funding by the U.S. government, but they make most of their money from audience participation. So three or four times a year, they spend two weeks doing pledge drives. So they will interrupt shows or they'll run special shows just for pledge drive season. And every 20 minutes, a studio host will come in and will ask you to give money to PBS so they can buy more Doctor Who. So they ran all four parts of the four Doctors as a special bonus one weekday night. So I decided I was going to videotape it, and I wanted the whole thing, but I underestimated how long the pledge breaks were going to be. So I set my VCR for a three-hour time block, and my friend Stephen joked to me the, night, the day before, you know, if you don't set your VCR for long enough, your tape is going to cut out at exactly the moment that Barusa puts the ring on. So <laughs> I, I set my tape. The next morning before going to school, I run downstairs to see if it taped. And, you know, the old VCRs, the old top-loading VCRs had foot counters, so you knew where you were on the tape. So I fast-forwarded every 100 feet. So I can still tell you to this day that 200 feet in is Richard Herndahl eating pineapple. Um, <laughs> I get to the end of the Doctor Who portion of the tape and by the way the guy who was doing pledge drives for PBS was a local attorney who hosted a local show on that PBS station grew up in the same apartment building as my mother and she recognized him so she would watch the pledge breaks only just to see her former friend while I was watching Doctor Who and the pledge breaks were a distraction so we get to the end of the episode and I'm you know about to go to school I get to the scene, they're in the tomb of Rassilon, he's putting on the ring, take the ring, others have come to claim immortality through the ages, it was given to them, as it shall be given to you. At that exact moment, what happens? The tape ran out, because I didn't set my VCR for <laughs> years before I got to see the last five, six minutes of the story again. Mm -hmm. So that was the probably one of the worst VCR malfunctions that I had as a kid, with the exception of losing the end of part four of Legopolis for similar reasons. So when my VCR malfunctioned, it was only wow, on the great really picked the moment. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love Five Doctors. I did a three-part series on Doctor Who literature exploring is this the greatest Doctor Who story of all time? And I think it came in at number three on my top 60 rank when I did that over the summer. So I don't think there's one bad word to say about this story. One of Terrence Dix's best scripts. Every line of dialogue is memorable. And even though it's an anniversary special, it's got a terrific plot. The plot is very, very tight, much tighter than, for example, Day of the Doctor. So, yeah, this is right up there for me as one of the best things the, the TV series ever did. End of gushing. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the new FX on the uh, the 40th anniversary version of the 20th anniversary story? <laughs> I enjoyed the special effects. I like the big um, ringed moon in the back of the Eye of Orion. I like that the obelisk is now actually an obelisk in the literal definition of the term, and it leaves divots on the ground as it flies away. What I didn't like is that they used the special edition recording of Rassilon's voice. I like the original Rassilon, and I don't like the way they changed the pitch of his voice to make him sound less British. So that was a misfire for me. Go back and give me the original Rassilon voice, not the special edition version. 
So that kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. But yeah, the special effects are nice. I'm not watching Five Doctors for the special <laughs> effects, though. <laughs> well, it has never looked better. I mean, mm. that was one of the problems with the scenes at the Eye of Orion is that it was clearly a very wet day in North Wales. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, so they've finally been able to do something about that. I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan of Port Merion, but it does rain a lot in that part of the world. But uh, yes, um, really loved seeing it in a slightly new guise. Of course, uh, still all of the memorable dialogue and bringing all the companions and the doctors together in that way. Yes, it's always an absolute pleasure to watch the five doctors again. The only bit I was disappointed at is, and I've, I've said this a couple of times, I said it, I think on our, our Shada podcast when that was animated, is that um, it would be a great thing if we could just get a little bit more Tom footage in there and the bicycle chase is the perfect thing to stick in there. Still have the punting scene and cut to another scene and then instead of the um, Skagra's mind sphere chasing the Doctor through Oxford, have the time scoop. Put that scene back in it, and then obviously when he's down in the alleyway trying to still escape from it, it's the time scoop, then he gets whisked up, and then it fits more perfectly in with him then being dumped back in there at the end of the story and then Romana coming to pick him up in the TARDIS. If I was more talented as a film editor and stuff, and I only do YouTube videos, so I don't <laughs> really have that much of a bloody talent, I point a camera at a action figure and talk about it but if I had more talent I'd give it my own shot at doing that and I'm surprised nobody's done a fan edit and stuck it up on YouTube because I think that would be great to stick that um, best of both worlds in there <laughs> yeah best of both worlds I guess for edit wouldn't it be but yeah I this it's and it's such an atypical Doctor Who story, and it doesn't feel like it. Do, 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 we don't really do quests, you know. We tried it once with the key to time, and it was okay, but you know, it became a. It was always a sort of a B plot. The Doctor gets sent on a quest, and all, it's such a way of when you're trying to write a story that's got you know these f four big character leading men actors. They're not doing character parts, but it's great that we've got Pertwee and Troughton both have got already got their rapport from the three doctors uh, to, to, to roll with. And I think, you know, people have said, you know, I, I don't disagree. Tom Baker's absence creates a bit of equality among the rest of them. Uh, it would be crowded with him. Um, so, you know, although it was disappointing at the time, it, it's all, it all worked out okay, you know, that this was the time for all the rest of them to shine. Um, and things like having, having, uh, the first Doctor up against 80 Cybermen was just such a great clash, you know, of, of, of stuff, the most modern, coolest, newest versions of uh, of, of, of a monster. Of course, they go back to the 60s, but they're, they're, those 80 Cybermen are very 80s, and having him against them. And I think there's a real... I, th I think they're road testing. I think the relationship between the Hernal Doctor and Tegan is a road test of the relationship we're going to get between the Sixth Doctor and Perry. They're prickly with each other, but they both sort of give as good as they get a bit. And, if, and um, uh, yeah, and there was criticism from some people at the time that the Fifth Doctor was too nice and that the Doctor had never been that nice before. And so they, they were going to go to the opposite extreme, whoever replaced him. Uh, and I think, but it was so strange that this when this came out, 
Davison's departure had already been announced. That's really hard yeah, yeah. To, to get your head around um, retrospectively because this feels just like Davison in full flow, but he really was there and then gone in an instant. Uh, there was they, they announced his departure as part of the publicity well, for this. Yeah, we know all of that is on on the discs, isn't it? So. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I always remember it from the picture in the Radio Times 20th anniversary special of Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant at the very end of the magazine with this is what's to come. The, yeah. the future is, is coming and the doctor you know isn't going to be here much longer. Colin looking really cool in an 80s yeah. white shirt. And, yeah. I know. <laughs> Look oh. like, it looks like he's just off triangle. For the, uh, for the 50th, because... By the time Day of the Doctor went out, they'd already announced that Matt Smith was going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Was taken yeah. So history repeated itself like 30 yeah. years. And, and yeah, he, um, yeah. he turns up at the end to help defeat um, the Daleks, doesn't yeah. he? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. They play about with it a bit, don't they? <laughs> mm. Yeah. Which is clever. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's it's it's. I think it, it's that and the day of the Doctor are my two. If I ever just want a bit of a Doctor Who comfort food kind of story, absolute just whisked away by the brilliance of it, I'll stick one of those two on. And they tend to be either whenever it's the anniversary each year, I'll always choose one on the twenty third of November, and it's always either the Five Doctors or Day of the Doctor. And I kind of like alternate between the two because they're just brilliant celebrations of the show. Absolutely. I, I I never warmed to the original special edition of The Five Doctors because it put back in stuff that didn't need to be there in the first place, and they tried to make it something that it wasn't, and they took away a lot of the fun, whereas the new special edition, just using the original cut of the story as its basis, I think works much, much better and actually is very special. And while there's still a part of me that really loves the 2D triangles coming to get them, and I wish they'd done a version of that effect because there was something as a child that I found quite creepy about 2D things in a 3D world, and I think yeah. that that worked. And they never quite do that again. And I, I'm always a bit kind of sad that they don't, they didn't sort of recreate that that effect, but hey, you know that's just me quibbling. Actually, everything else in the special edition is great. And again, I just want to say another word for the music in this story because Peter Howe knocks it out of the park for this story, and the decision he makes to sample the original theme and make it really creepy and odd is one of the best decisions he ever made, and that works. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. There's that line in the, the the line that Patrick Troughton has where he says, "Our past is catching up with us, or maybe it's our future." Uh, and just nothing like this has happened before. And that's what right. and I think that's where it comes in for the first point. And you got yeah, that, that dong, 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 yeah, from the original. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. 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 it's stuck and it's gone wrong and it's old, but it's yeah, it's um the most important thing is they have restored the Cyberman <laughs> looking over the hill and seeing them and going, ah. Oh. <laughs> that, got, that got quite a cheer at the uh, at the BFI screening. The, the biggest thing, obviously, being the no, not the mind probe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the ah oh, went down really well, didn't yeah. it? And the punch when the brig- when the brigadier hits the uh, hits the master. I think there was always you could hear it just, but but 
Marquez has really turned it up. So it's a proper mm-hmm. or proper like um, you know cowboy movie bar fight. Thwack! And the Brigadier mm-hmm. punches the master. I'm all in favour of the Brigadier getting a hero. And this version of the Brigadier... Doesn't the Brigadier and Troughton work so well together? It's... It, it must have seemed a bit of a surprise at first that he wasn't with Pertwee. And I imagine had Tom Baker been there, he would have got Sarah and, and Trout and, and, you know, that they would have reshuffled. That's, how did Terence Dix write a script under those conditions where he was just crossing out names and putting in different names? But, but oh, being I know, a... there's that wonderful story, isn't there, where Eric Saywood rings Terence Dix up and says, oh, hello, Terence, how's the script going? He said, well, I'm just about to submit it. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I think he also says that he got another phone call saying, "Well, now you've got this person, but you've not got this person." <laughs> and it's that constant giggling that he has to do. That's lovely. Well, he definitely played a blind yeah. boy, as he one. did with the war games. I mean, that's the thing. You know, it, 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 there's a similarity, isn't there? It, it, it's a, it's a completely. Pr- ridiculous set of things to agree to try and do and and but you know this six-part story can you make it last 10 weeks yeah um, why not and, and at the time and he used in interviews he used to be a bit um you know apologetic about the war games and, and until people kept telling him no it's brilliant and eventually he came around to uh, to accepting it it's a brilliant way to uh, like end the, uh, the the 20th anniversary year as well isn't it on such a brilliant Kind of like uh, celebratory note, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, I think it's probably the last instance where the BBC really kind of like in the eighties really appreciated the show um, because you then kind of like you know for right or wrongly you then get Michael Grade coming in and you then see a shift in how the BBC higher ups uh, decide to like you know treat um, what was you know they didn't see it at the time it was you know one of their golden jewels one of the high money makers um but you know that's that's the future uh of what was to come yeah i mean was it seen as being too big for its boots did any other shows ever have 20th anniversary specials of this ilk i mean maybe something like nationwide might have you know it's just oh, a chat show Peter, top of the pops yeah that's a good example but yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah which i imagine is sort of cheaper um but was was there an idea that if a drama has lasted 20 years actually nobody Nobody wants to take it on anymore. That was part of the problem, mm-hmm. wasn't it? They couldn't get anyone to agree because because if you're an upcoming drama producer, you don't want to you don't want to be whatever is it the ninth, tenth producer of an ongoing thing. You want to make your mark with your own show. So I can see why they. Uh, um, well, I mean, it was all part of the sort of nasty politics that were going on at the time, anyway. You know, and this was something that I became aware of through what I was reading through. Um, Talk to monthly and newspaper reports, and just like, yeah, I think there was a big backlash, you know, because it was so beloved and Longleat had been such a success, and there was the five doctors, and then suddenly, I mean, Colin Baker's doctor was obviously, like you say, less nice than Peter Davison's doctor, character a lot more challenging, doing more interesting things with the doctor companion relationship and um yeah the political ideology at the time and like everything has to be run by money men and it's the city that decides what happens and if something costs more money than 
than it actually makes, then sorry, you know, you can't have it anymore. Mm. Mm. Yeah, just undervalued. Yeah. But yeah, not kind of who us. has last long, lasted longest? Yeah. yeah, who's lasted <laughs> longest? Exactly. I, I just yeah. have to comment when you said, Pete, that Eric Saywood was doing the template for the sixth Doctor and Perry mm. with the first Doctor and Tegan. I now have got the image of Richard Herndall strangling Janet Fielding. Or <laughs> 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 being pulled off by the Brigadier and saying, well, what the hell are you doing, man? <laughs> yeah, I can, see, I can see that. But of course, but yeah, Tegan would have fought back, which is what Perry should have done. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else that we can say about season 21 and this excellent collection boxer? I just can't believe it's been 40 years. It <sighs> still feels kind of like yesterday, which is the scariest thing of all. Mm. And, and that officially makes me, although I'm possibly the youngest here, <laughs> very, very yeah. old anyway. <laughs> No, yeah, I remember when it, it was hilarious that it was the 20th anniversary of the 20th anniversary yeah, special. and now, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, this box set is an absolute thing of beauty, as they all are. It is stuffed through with more extras than you can shake a stick at. There are some brilliant moments. There are some perhaps some bits perhaps where maybe you think yeah I maybe won't watch this because the sound quality is not this good on this convention footage but there's all of the little extras from BBC Breakfast Time and all of the other things that they've got going on in there there's a lot of really brilliant stuff to get your teeth into on this box set quite apart from the stories themselves which are all little gems in their own right yeah so much stuff that i saw at the time that just brought back such memories the blue peter from the 20th anniversary mm. i vividly remember watching that and shouting to my mum that there were yetis on the tv because that was one that she talked about so much when she was young <laughs> so all of those things just bring back and the Richard Herndall's hello to you from the Time Lords. <laughs> and it's so lovely to see him involved with Doctor Who so so close to his death, you know, and yeah. and all of this, you know. So yeah, it it like Denise said, it's packed full. And when you've got a sub menu of a menu of extras, because <laughs> there's an extra bit that will not fit on the main screen. Yeah. Then, you know, you've got something they have gone all out to find everything for. Yeah. It's the reason why it took us so long to do this podcast. Yes. <laughs> is your mum still watching some Doctor Who stories on iPad? She is, she is um, up to the war games now. So she's doing very well. well. <laughs> Brilliant. She's doing better than Mark, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, guys, so where can we find you and what are you currently up to, uh, Jason? I am leaving Twitter forever, December 31st, 2023. The reinstatement of Alex Jones is a bridge too far for me and I will not be a part of it. You can find me on Blue Sky, and if you need an invite code, I do have a few of those. I am on Doctor Who Literature, which can be found on just about any one of your podcast apps of choice, and I am in the process of putting it live on YouTube, so you might be able to find ah. videoless episodes of my podcast there within the coming weeks. 
I am in between episodes 98 and 99, so I just released The Invasion, starring somebody named Pete... Oh, I don't know, who, who would listen to a fool, a fool like that rabbiting on about Doctor Who? <laughs> Everybody, because that was the fastest downloaded episode of Doctor Who literature ever. I've hit 120 downloads in wow, more than cool. 24 hours, which is nothing for most podcasts, but for me is a really big deal. And... Uh, my next episode will be 99, The Crotons, with Jim Sangster. We're going to have a lot of fun with that one. And that will be the first episode that releases in 2024. So happy early New Year. Denise. I am at Cup of Tea 69 on Twitter. And I am also Denisery on both Mastodon and Blue Sky. But I don't spend enough time there. I need to organize my life a bit better. Um, and there's links to my blog on my bios for these things. Pete? Yeah, well, you may, people may want to check out Doctor Who Literature. It is a really good episode. It was, it was really fun talking about The Invasion, one of my all-time favourite stories, and, and Jason's too, uh, and, uh, and Maximum Power, the Blake's Heaven podcast, which, of which you may have heard, is, is currently rolling uh, through the, uh, the peak of, it, of, of its third series. Uh, so look, listen out for me there, yeah. Which is where you can also hear me a lot of the time as well. So quite often on the same episodes with Pete, which is always yeah. a, a joy. So yeah, and you can also hear me on my my new podcast, The Library of Impossible Things, where I'm talking to fans about their stories of growing up with Doctor Who and being an adult with Doctor Who, and in fact, just generally um, being a person who loves Doctor Who. <laughs> so. Um, when we're recording today, I've just um, put out my Christmas episode, which is my memories of 43 years of Doctor Who Christmases, which was an absolute joy to do and a very nostalgic for me. Hmm. I'm certainly going to line that one up when I'm uh, uh, wrapping the rest of my presents, even though I think this podcast is actually going out after Christmas. Um, but you can find me on uh, what is I'm still calling Twitter. I refuse to call it X, Django Mac 72 I need to get back onto Blue Sky because I keep forgetting my password, and I think I'm either Django Mac or Django Mac 72 I'll have to double-check that and tell you next time I'm on the podcast. Uh, I'm also on YouTube as Bearded Toy Reviews, and as of the time of recording this, I am on 931 subscribers, so I'm just 69 subscribers away from hitting the magical 1,000 mark. So uh, please subscribe to the channel. Uh, I do have a Doctor Who video coming up uh, probably in the new year, which uh, I talked about in the last uh, podcast where I'm going to be customising some Sylvester McCoy TV movie action figures uh, to make them uh, <laughs> a little bit different. So check out that. Um, but thank you very much for everybody who's been listening today. It's been an absolute delight with the four of you to talk about one of the best seasons and an amazing collection box set. So from all of us on Trap One, thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next Trap One podcast. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. See you next Bye. time. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>